Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fracture care. Welcome everybody. I'm Jackie Close. I'm one of the co-chairs of the Hip Fracture Registry and with me today is Hannah Seymour. Hannah's a geriatrician over at Fiona Stanley in WA and she's also a member of our steering group. And today's topic is about when not to operate for people towards the end of their lives. And so that's the topic I'm going to be asking Hannah to share her experiences. So Hannah, in terms of surgery, we include surgery as part of a palliative option for hip fracture patients. So are, are there patients who shouldn't undergo surgery? So I'm interested to hear your experience and your thoughts. Thanks, Jackie. I think the first thing to acknowledge is that this is an area that troubles many of us and we often look back at a situation and think, could we have done this differently? And so I think it's a hot topic in many areas of the world because it is so difficult and there often isn't a right answer. And I think if we, there's also a balance here because if we question this too often, then it delays people who could benefit from an operation while we debate this, this question, and, and that can impact massively on our, uh, a large volume of patients. So I think there are a group, in my experience, who are very clearly um, not going to benefit from an operation. So I looked at our numbers, and we look after about 500 hip fractures a year, of whom about 15 a year, if you've got about a 3% acute mortality rate, die each year within their acute episode of care, which actually is surprisingly few. So I think what it's worth also commenting early in this discussion is that it constantly su surprises me who survives an operation and how much in our heads we overestimate mortality perioperatively. And so for me, the group of patients who are clearly for palliation is actually very small. So in our 500 patients a year, I can remember maybe five patients each year where we chose not to operate. And a couple of examples of those have occurred recently. So someone with very severe lung disease who died before, uh, within 24 hours of admission, who clearly was too unwell for an operation and was clearly dying. And another recent example is someone with end-stage renal failure on dialysis with dementia, who was struggling to manage dialysis because of his dementia, who came in after a fall with a hip fracture, but also with an acute brain um, injury and a large intracerebral hemorrhage. So for me, those are two patients who were clearly dying and they were dying quickly in the next day or two and an operation was clearly not going to benefit them. But the number of patients for whom that is appropriate each year is actually very small. Yeah, and interestingly, I've had somebody in the last um, couple of weeks as well with tight aortic stenosis who was already considered not suitable for a TAVI, um, already onto a palliative trajectory, and then fell and broke her hip. And again, she died within two or three um, days. So I agree, there are, there are some people who clearly are very close to the end of life where for surgery doesn't make a difference. But I guess, and I agree with you, I think the numbers are very small. But I'm also interested in any tips you have around when you've made that decision not to operate, how do you ensure that you provide good palliative 
care for these people at the end of their lives. So I think for that very small group of patients who are clearly dying and dying quickly, then standard palliative care is our approach. Um, we don't necessarily use a nerve catheter. Um, we would normally just use a standard approach of subcut morphine and involve palliative care if, if the person is very distressed or we've got particular need. Um, but I think that brings us to that group in between, which is where often we're discussing with our multidisciplinary colleagues what is the right approach. And I think we debate whether to operate or not on a larger group of patients than the patients who are acutely dying and are very clearly dying. And I think that's where the complexity comes in because people's opinions differ and anaesthetists get very anxious about, are we doing the right thing quite rightly for people who are at very high operative risks? So I looked at, you know, again, when you look at the numbers out of our 500 patients a year, only 15 die perioperatively. And yet 40% have a clinical frailty scale of six to seven and are very, very dependent. And 20% have an ASA of four or above. So we're looking after an incredibly frail group of patients and the operative risk is high. And yet surprisingly, when people go through an operation, they cope very well. And I think we're very, very comfortable the more we do this in having very difficult shared decision-making discussions with patients and their families about the reasons for operation, why we're doing it, which is about comfort and quality of life. But that by doing the operation, we reduce uncertainty, we give them certainty about they're going to have an operation, their pain is going to be a little bit better over the next week or two. And yes, they may deteriorate, but actually that happens less than we often think in our brains. Um, and it allows everybody to move into the next phase, which is they may get better, they may not. So even when we've looked at the mortality rates of our very dependent patients, so people with a clinical frailty scale of six or above, it's still only 40 to 50% at 12 months. And you can think of that as a very high mortality, but that means 50 or 60% are still alive at 12 months. And yet I can't always tell the difference between those who are going to do better than we think and those who are going to do worse than we think. And even with a lot of clinical experience, if we debate it too much, it becomes um, we extend out that preoperative time and people actually do worse. So I think we have to constantly remind ourselves and our teams of our data. And using your own local data to have that discussion is really important because it's your care that you're providing and looking at your own mortality rate and reviewing the cases of people who did die actually helps us learn more each time about which group of patients maybe we should be considering not operating on more often. And I think your data is no different to what we see in the rest of the registry, Hannah. I think the vast majority yeah. of sites are offering surgery for these individuals unfortunate enough to break their hip, including those towards the end of their life. Um, so it's good to hear um, your thoughts on it. Um, I, I think it is a difficult area and I think the vast majority still will get surgery, but, but there are a small number that come through our doors where surgery doesn't change their outcome. And as long as we've got good palliative care services to support us, um, then hopefully their outcome um, is a dignified exit from this world. Jackie, I think 
I think it's worth just talking about a couple more examples that, that illustrate the difficulty of these decisions and how we can approach them. So we had one person recently who, I think the most useful question for me in approaching someone who clearly is in the last phase of their life with end-stage disease of one sort or another. So most commonly, the, the end-stage diseases that we come across in this situation are end-stage heart failure or end-stage lung disease. And often the discussion about echoes can, be, can add to the level of anxiety and angst about patients. So we try really hard to assess someone's function and stability. So if you're stable and you've been at the same level of function for many months, then it seems unlikely to me that you're imminently dying because you're in the same situation you have been. When there's an echo result, sometimes that adds to anxiety. So we had someone recently who had an ejection fraction of 10%, which made the anaesthetists, I think, rightly very concerned. But actually, when you took a history from him, he'd been relatively stable for some months, and there was no history of him deteriorating before he fell and broke his hip. So in that situation, there was lots of discussion, but we went ahead with an operation, and cardiovascularly, he, he tolerated that pretty well. So the other big group of people would be people who are on home oxygen with end-stage lung disease. And again, that phase of life can actually be relatively long for some people, and their lung disease can be quite stable, um, but they commonly fall in and have a fracture. And again, if there's no history of a recent deterioration, we would tend to go ahead with the operation in that situation. But we might take some shared decisions that are not maybe traditional approaches. So for example, we have operated with a spinal anesthetic as a combined decision between anesthetists and geriatricians um, in people who are taking antiplatelets or even dual antiplatelets. Because if the risk benefit is still outweighs um, the downsides of that approach, then I think so long as you've had a shared decision-making approach with the patient and their family and they understand, then that still is the right thing to do. So I think it is really important to consider all the options available, the risks and benefits of each, and then take a shared approach. Um, within Australia and New Zealand, I think we're much more comfortable now about having those difficult conversations and being honest with people about the risk attached, um, but also the downsides if we don't approach, uh, if we don't do an operation. So I think it is that shared approach, both within the team and with the patient and their family, is absolutely critical to this whole decision-making process. I think that's probably a very good point to end. So, Hannah, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. This podcast is based on the 2020 HIPFest lecture series and can be found at www.anzhfr.org. The Australian and New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of this land that we are based on and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging.